Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and I'm Deputy Editor here at Prospect. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Miranda France, a writer and translator, to discuss the fourth and final volume of John Richardson's Life of Picasso, which covers the years 1933 to 1943, which Miranda has very brilliantly reviewed in the current issue of Prospect. Miranda, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Samir. <laughs> Thanks so much for your really terrific piece. I was thinking that Picasso is the archetypal selfish genius, in a way, the man for whom everyone seemed to sacrifice themselves. And as you write in the piece, his genius spawned a dizzying industry and much personal mayhem. So in short, he seems the perfect subject for a biography. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I suppose um, it's a difficult thing for the descendants of geniuses, isn't it? Do they take the money and enjoy it? Or do they try to disassociate themselves in some way? I think probably a lot of them end up doing a bit of both and much uh, distress and, and confusion probably comes along with that. Yeah, the mayhem you cover quite well. And it is quite extraordinary quite how many people ended up becoming either mentally disturbed and or committing suicide in relation to, to, to Picasso. Yes, that's true. I mean, he had, well, his uh, lover, Marie Therese, committed suicide, didn't she? And another of, of uh, his lovers, and I think at least one child, quite a few associates definitely came a cropper after their connection with him. And this isn't just any old biography. This is, you know, the Picasso biography by John Richardson, um, who died uh, in 2019. So this is a posthumous um, fourth volume uh, of, the bi- of the biography. And he has a quite an interesting story himself, doesn't he? And he, he knew Picasso well. Yes, that's right. He first met him in the 1950s. His boyfriend at the time was Douglas Cooper, who was an art collector and had a very much admired collection of Cubist art. And I think they had a house in the south of France, close to where uh, Picasso um, was often to be found when he wasn't in Paris. And Picasso would would drop around to look at the art and, and they'd have lunch together. And so I think they got to know each other quite well at that time. In a way, he was made by that relationship. Um, but does does that affect, do you think, the 
the biography's stance? You know, is it fair or unfair to Picasso because of the closeness the writer has to his subject? I think it must affect it. I mean, it's of course it's it's invaluable to have that kind of relationship motivating the the biography. And and John Richardson was really one of the last links that we had with Picasso because I mean he died just um, after finishing the book, and so he was ninety five, I think. So there aren't going to be many people of his generation left. And, and he knew Picasso very well. So a book by him on that relationship is, is priceless and deservedly um, has commanded a lot of attention. But at the same time, you know, he received gifts from Picasso, as I think everybody in that circle probably did. And that must somehow affect uh, the way that he saw him and the way that he portrays him to us. And the other thing to say, I think, is that a life is an interesting thing because it doesn't really, there isn't one life, is there? There's a, there's a different life according to um, the relationship of the person to the subject. And also there's a different life after that, that, after the subject dies. So perhaps one of the problems that I saw with this final uh, volume of the, um, of the biography is that I felt that John Richardson wasn't able to see Picasso quite through the eyes of the current generation, to, you know, for want of a better way of putting it, that uh, he, he still seemed to be describing him in a way that doesn't quite pass muster anymore, doesn't feel quite comfortable somehow. Yeah, you're right in the, in the earlier volumes, he was a lucid and sceptical admirer, but he seems to have sort of lost that scepticism in this final book. It seemed that way to me. I felt quite early on that I was... Um, that I was feeling, um, sorry, I'll start that again. Um, I felt quite early on that I was noticing a, a strange way, particularly of talking about his relationships with women. And I don't want to be somebody who, who um, patrols or polices the way that men write about the, the women in their lives or vice versa. I mean, we all have um, all kinds of different relationships, but there was a sort of um, siding with Picasso in finding women tedious or irritating or, or conversely, you know, gorgeous and, and uh, sexy. And it didn't feel, it felt very one-dimensional. I would have loved to have known more about the, the relationships in Picasso's life and what it was actually like to be his wife or his lover. And I didn't feel like I had much sense of that, even though um, John Richardson did know some of these women quite well, I think especially Dora Maar, who was Picasso's lover during the time of this volume, which is the sort of the 1930s and, and 40s. But we don't get much sense of what it would have been like to be the person who was often appearing on his canvases and, and living with him and, and putting up with all of these terrible um, bad moods, etc., I mean, the tone is set on the first page of the biography of this volume because he talks about the, Picasso's married life with his Russian wife, Olga. We just get Olga. We don't get a surname or we don't get identification, Olga Koklova. Um, and then it talks about how, you know, he, he preferred her sort of impeccably ladylike consort behaviour, but she'd become a termagant at home. And there seems like this the terminology seems so loaded against her, even 
from the start. And I wonder whether that does ultimately affect not just our view of the man and as and, and as you were saying, you know, people can be incredibly flawed and still produce great art, but whether it does actually change our view of the paintings. Um, that's an interesting question. I think that it does. I mean, I think it will change my view of the paintings. And I was comparing, in a way, my reaction to the book with my reaction to the Picasso exhibition that was on at the Tate about four years ago. And now that now that I see how um, Olga was really denigrated in a lot of the artworks, especially ones in which Marie Therese, who was his lover at the same time, and we should remember that Marie Therese, when he met her, was 17 and is not much older at the time of this, of, of this biography. So she's a, a girl. In fact, at one point, when he's going to the south of France and he wants to put her up somewhere nearby, he puts her up in a, a sort of a children's holiday camp. So she's young enough to be housed in a children's holiday camp, uh, but she's also Picasso's lover. Uh, and he's portraying Olga in the way that seems almost to, to remind you of those very hackneyed old jokes where you've got the sort of the, the, the annoying wife who won't let you go and do what, you, what you'd like to do, go and have it away with the 17-year-old. So she's often portrayed just as sort of a, a screaming mouth or a, a rather hysterical-looking horse. Anybody who remembers the, the, the painting Guernica will remember there's a hysterical horse in the middle of that. I don't know if that's meant to be Olga. But, yes, I, I, I think now I, I would look at those canvases and think, hmm, I wonder if I admire them as much as I did. He, he presents Olga as a horse and himself as a, a minotaur. And bullfights were extremely important to him. I know you know Spain very well. What was it about bullfighting that appealed to Picasso and the iconography of bullfighting? Well, I suppose that bullfighting is the quintessentially Spanish art. At least it would have been regarded as that at the time. And I think a lot of people might still regard it as that. And it encapsulates a lot of ideas that that we may have about Spain and that Spaniards themselves, I think, have had to do with passion and violence and um, the perhaps a sort of a fight between between lovers to see who who's going to win. Of course, I mean, nearly always it's the same person who wins. It's the it's the torero, the bullfighter. Although occasionally it goes the other way, and. The Minotaur as a, a sort of um, as an emblem of, of the subconscious and of subconscious idea, ideas had already been proposed by Freud. So he wasn't the first person to show an interest in the Minotaur as a, a figure representing half human, half animal instincts. And the Surrealists were also very interested in, in, in the Minotaur and indeed had a journal called the Minotaur for which, for which uh, Picasso made the first cover so, but they, he very much took to this figure and clearly felt it, it, it could be used to re represent himself. And I was thinking, actually, if there are other artists who've used a figure to represent themselves in canvases in that way, and I couldn't think of anybody in particular um, before Picasso, but um, the Minotaur represents partly his kind of bullish um, personality and, and uh, demeanour. He's a sort of little, strong guy. And so he uses it in these pictures that are often charged with a kind of eroticism and an aggression and a particularly Spanish kind of passion, perhaps. And we illustrated your piece with one of the etchings from the Vollard 
suite, which I remember seeing nearly all of them together at an exhibition maybe about 10 or 15 years ago. And it has these pictures of the Minotaur, Picasso as the Minotaur, approaching a sleeping prone woman about to attack her, about to even perhaps rape her. And in isolation, I think maybe they seem to have a level of self-knowledge or self-understanding about his own destructive and aggressive impulses. But somehow seeing so many of them one after the other gives you a slightly queasy sensation. I'm not quite sure how to put my finger on it because they are self-revealing and self-critical in a way, but there's also a kind of celebration of that dangerous masculine power, isn't there? Yes, and maybe um, an exaltation of the animal power, of the of the idea that the human rationality is not always going to be able to overcome the animal and shouldn't always overcome it, that it's defensible for the animal sometimes to, I was going to say, have the upper hand, although that hand doesn't seem quite right <laughs> uh, for the although I can see that Minotaur actually does have a hand in that picture. But yes, I agree with you. There's something um, disconcerting about the idea of, of allowing that animal force to come through, especially if it's being directed at a young sleeping woman who we can see as Marie Therese, a teenager herself. So um, although equally you can also say that it's a very admirable etching, it's a, it, it's beautifully done, Um I would certainly stop and look at it in the gallery and admire it, I think. I mean, the big question of the last few years is, and you've written about this for us as well, you know, what to do with, especially with these grand male artists who not only behaved badly in their private lives, but also made work and great, made admirable and great works of art in many ways out of that chaos as well. I mean, as you say, steadiness doesn't make for great art, but... Is it a case of trying to contextualise things? Is it a case of trying to sort of give the, the viewer more information? Or are we just getting a little bit oversensitive about things and expecting moral perfection from artists is, is never going to be a realistic proposition? Oh, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? I do think that friction in your own life and even unhappiness and a bad personality can lead to great expressions of art. I mean, art, art should express what it means to be human and um, what it means to be human is not always sunshine and flowers. You know, there's a lot of dark impulses and perhaps artists, novelists included, sometimes need to feel that friction and those competing interests in their own lives. I'm sure that they need to. Although when I try to think of examples of men and women, I think of an awful lot more men than women. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Whenever one talks about a troublesome female artist, it always tends to be, well, you know, they were a bit haughty. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they threw you know, something some, at Yeah, they were, you know, maybe they weren't very polite at a dinner party or something like that. That's that's the sort of the extent to it, whilst the, the male artists tend to leave a lot of damage in their, damage in their way. Yes, that's true. Or, I don't know, maybe some of the women have managed to, to, to keep their bad behaviour quieter, or um, I'm not sure exactly what it is. But I, and, and the contextualisation is tricky too. Uh, when I went to the Rodin exhibition at the Tate last year, there was a sign that asked me to remember that Rodin had often not been very nice to the women who posed for him. 
And I felt a bit patronised by that. I wasn't really sure that that was the way that I wanted, <laughs> wanted to um, be experiencing Rodin somehow. So you can end up talking down to the viewer, I think, if you try to contextualise everything. At the same time, um, when people are, are depicting their own lives on on canvases, as Picasso clearly was, then it, it makes sense to to know a bit more about about those lives, to know that Mary Therese, you know, ultimately was to take her own life, or to know that Olga was and Dora indeed both felt that they were driven mad to an extent by living with Picasso. I, I mean, I suppose we do need to know these things. I wouldn't then go further and say, well, I don't want to see him or I don't think he should be shown. But to, to, to know more about the context does does make sense, I think. Yeah, it's a slightly different situation. But uh, I think two, three years ago, there was an Eric Gill exhibition at the Ditchling Museum in Sussex. And obviously Eric Gill, you know, paedophilia, incest, sort of a different scale of wrongness, um, you would say. Uh, they dealt with it really quite well. I mean, they they asked invited artists to create works which, anyway, responded to Eric Gill in a sort of quite confrontational way. They also had certain works of art which they did show, but they put them behind a curtain and they said, "If you don't want to go behind here and see these quite explicit and somewhat disturbing drawings, you don't have to." The person I was with didn't want to. I did, because I'm always, give me a curtain, I always want to look behind it and, and see. And there was a sort of interesting video there which talked about the child abuse. And I think in a way that, although it's quite an extreme example, was a good way of dealing with art doesn't necessarily just have to sort of uplift, it can make you uncomfortable. And that can also be interesting. Yes, I agree with you. I think that's a much better response than deciding that we'll never look at Eric Gill's work again. And I, I still admire his work. Although, of course, it is going to make you feel uncomfortable in a way that it didn't before. But it surely must be better to acknowledge that there are things in life that are uncomfortable and um, and wrong um, than to try to pretend that, that he never existed. Um, so that sounds like a very good response. I wish I'd seen that. Yeah, no, it was, it was quite interesting. Um, moving on to, um, uh, you mentioned actually Guernica, uh, performing that is probably his most iconic, probably the most iconic painting of the 20th century uh, in some ways. But um, I thought it was interesting that you quoted a couple of sceptics, a couple of Guernica sceptics, Anthony Blunt and Buñuel. And I wonder whether what you thought of it as a painting and whether it does, in fact, capture the, the horrors of bombing and war as it's often claimed to. Yeah, well, I've seen it. I've seen it several times. And in fact, I've seen it fairly recently. I saw it about two years ago. I've also written about Guernica, I've been to Guernica, and I wrote about it while the Basque separatists were still quite, uh, you know, the the, 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 ter- the armed wing of that, ETA, was still quite a force um, to be reckoned with in Spain. And, um, and I felt a sense of horror visiting Guernica and, and talking to people who remembered uh, the day quite well when the... Um, when the, the town was, was bombed by the Luftwaffe. And I actually, I love the painting, but I don't feel a sense of horror when I look at it. Maybe it's too pretty. I mean, it's a beautiful painting and it's beautifully harmonious. Um, and perhaps it's because we recognise those, those um, Picasso's characters and what he's doing so well. It's not, for me, like looking at um, 
Agoya, for example, I don't feel uh, the horror of war and I don't feel, uh, you know, this must never happen again sense when I'm looking at it. It somehow doesn't doesn't have a, a visceral um, connection for me at all. I just think this looks nice. Um, but, oh, maybe it's, I mean, it's in black and white, isn't it? Maybe it's partly that. I don't know. Um I'd be interested to know to know what other people feel. It's a, it's such a it's such an icon now that um, I feel as if we're more aware of what it ought to stand for than we are um, than we are aware of what it's actually doing to us to to stand in front of it and look at it. I've only seen reproductions. I've never actually seen it, and I, I would quite like. I would I would personally reserve judgment until I'd seen it in um, real life because sometimes scale can affect a lot of how you how you judge a judge a painting. Um, it, yeah, uh, it, it does seem a bit like a sort of code or something that you need to sort of puzzle out. That's the one thing that I would say. To it. it doesn't have that sort of, you, you mentioned Goya, you know, you, you don't need to know the backstory when you see Satan devouring his children or two people clubbing each other in a in a, in, in a sand dune. It's immediately impactful um, in that way. But um, and as I said, I, I would have reserved judgment until I actually saw it. Yes, and there's an immediacy and a lack of care um, in Satan devouring his children that feels as though somebody um, has done it in a, in a sort of a heightened state. Whereas, I mean, I, when you talk about jigsaw, that's almost, I mean, I'm sure there, I'm sure you can get a jigsaw of Guernica and it would be a very satisfying jigsaw to do because you get all your little bits and, and, and put them in. Um, but that's not the same thing as being, as being horrified or moved. It's a more it's a more cerebral experience, I think, than an emotional one for me, anyway. And that's the thing with the Picasso. We were discussing in the office with a fellow um, art lover, and he, he was saying that um, there is something slightly cold about Picasso. There is something, you know, the the superb ability, that the the, um, the technical uh, brilliance the huge productivity it does overwhelm you somehow getting a grip getting to grips with it is i think i read somewhere there's 50,000 works of art he created over his lifetime which is just extraordinary but for me i don't ever quite emotionally connect with what he's doing um and i wonder whether um it's a similar sense of that sort of uh, there's beauty there but it it is it does seem quite detached um, yes. Yes, it's the quite chaos, cool. You know? I mean, how, how many times realistically in a career can an artist tap into a, a, a well of sort of pure emotion and and produce something that's <clears throat> that, that's that's from the heart um, and that is going to uh, going to make that kind of connection with us as the viewer or as the reader? I mean, maybe the same thing is true of writing as well. Perhaps it's just not possible to keep conveying pure emotion um that that's that immediacy that we want from a great work of art perhaps we're lucky if we get it two or three times from from an artist or from a, or from a very good writer or or from a composer i don't know um but i know what you mean that he feels like somebody i mean in some ways it's it's very moving to see his very early work there was a picasso ex, um, exhibition at the royal academy just, I remember I went, I think, on the day before the first lockdown started when we knew that we were going to have a lockdown and I managed to get to see the Picasso exhibition just before it was closed down and there weren't very many people there. 
and to look at his very early works when he was a teenager or in his early 20s and clearly somebody with extraordinary gifts. And that, I think, for me was more emotional, to see somebody coming into the light as an extraordinary artist. Um, that was a powerful thing. And then later on, I mean, I love I love the Cubist works, but I suppose... With some of them, you're looking at somebody who's worked out how to do something very clever and is now in, involved in, in a kind of cerebral or academic pursuit of that. You know, what, what sorts of different ways can I do um, a newspaper and, uh, uh, and a pot on a table? Um, and we may feel a, a, a lack of, a, of um, an emotional connection to it, but we can still be interested in... in um, in that experiment, I mean, it's a very interesting experiment, and it and it's um, at the time it must have felt ex- extremely new and radical. And speaking of his early days, um, you end the piece by talking about um, his sister Conchita, who died when she was very young, and that and the figure of Conchita, I think Richardson argues, appears again and again um, in his works, um, and the figure of the sort of the votive. Um, um, posture. Um, that was that was really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't I didn't know about that. And that is one of those things where biography can really illuminate, um, as it were, something that um, can remain a mystery within the painting. Yes, that's true. Although, again, maybe the cynical side of me thinks, well, I can see how an artist might find this an interesting um, element to keep to keep. Um, including in paintings, and that it didn't necessarily... I mean, Richardson says that Conchita was very ill and some, they were waiting... So Conchita was, um, I think, um, seven. It was in 1895. She was seven, he was 13. And um, at the time, they were living in La Coruña, which is in the north of Spain. And they were waiting for some very special serum to arrive that might make her better. And... um, it didn't arrive in time, and and she died of uh, diphtheria. Um, and apparently, he had made a, a vow that um, if only his sister would survive, then he, he he would never pick up a paintbrush again. And she didn't. No, he he did paint pick up his paintbrush, and then she died. And um, Richardson felt that he did really quite strongly believe that there was some connection between him him breaking his vow and um, his sister's death. Although he also admits that there are, that there's quite a lot of mythology around Picasso's childhood. For example, that his father, um, who was a, a, an artist himself and, a, and a, an art teacher, um, when he saw Picasso's um, early efforts, said, I'm never going to, I will never pick up my paintbrush again. But in fact, he did. So um, the, the, there's a lot of um, uh, mythologizing of, of um uh, of the idea of this prodigy and um, people, um, the people around him and how, how they were affected. But um, but Richardson clearly believes that this story about Conchita was um, was true and did have a, um, a lasting effect on Picasso. And he also connects it with uh, Picasso's sort of um, superstitiousness and apparently a dread of illness or death. He particularly didn't like women being ill, and he made a strange 
um, comment once to Richardson, in which he said that women's illnesses are always women's fault, which is which is um, sort of a, <laughs> a rather strange um, uh, diagnosis. But anyway, um, that is interesting, and, and we then sort of notice that we can see Conchita in various in various other um, manifestations, holding holding her little lamp. Yes, and in a way, it does fit together with um, what we've been discussing because. Uh, you know the, the the dead young girl who's forever appearing in his dreams. It 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 it, it can also be seen as a, a sort of um infantilizing uh, infantilizing image in some sense. Um, and you talk about Olga as well. Her what you know he, she was ill a lot of the time as well. And he was deeply impatient with that, and that's when he sort of went straying off off as well. Yeah. So um so it all comes. All comes full circle. The works are there. We know the works. We'll continue looking at them, thinking about them. Um, it's a shame in a way that um, we didn't get to the end of uh, Richardson's volumes. Um, he, he died. They'll never probably be completed, but it remains something of um, something of a monument, um, even if it's flawed and the artist himself has flaws as well. Yes, certainly. It's, 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 uh, it's an extraordinary... Thanks so much, Miranda. It's been great to have you. And um, thanks so much for listening uh, today, everyone. Um, that's all from us. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue, Prospect, which has Miranda's piece in it. You can go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. The current issue you can also read writing from Samuel Moyne, Basma Kodmani, Stay safe and listen out for the next episode of Prospect. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.